That's a spirit. I'll just get it going and then. What you, which one are you after here, Mitch? Mate, whatever. They, I both mm. take whatever you want. It's the same for me, mate. It's all liquid. <laughs> liquid power. Hey guys, and welcome back to Life in the Peloton. We've had a little hiatus while the Tour de France was on. I hope you guys enjoyed watching the tour or just hanging out in the summer or in the, the depths of the winter back in Australia. But we're back on track, and this week we are bringing you with an awesome podcast. I sat down with my good friend and awesome guy, the legend Swain Tuft, last week. Well, actually, a couple of days ago, we we were up here in Andorra and he came across to my place and we hiked up into the high country, found a little meadow, sat back, cracked a couple cold beers and pulled the podcast, well, the recording equipment out and recorded a podcast. Something I get the chance to do with him quite often, but this time I thought, you know what, I'm going to record one of these stories that I get to hear all the time and let you guys in on a bit of insights to his amazing life, his journey from back in Canada, all the way across to his pro career and looking into the future, into his next sort of endeavors. So it's a really, really good podcast. If you don't know much about Swain Tuft, he's a Canadian mountain man who was a bit late into the game of the professional world of cycling. You know, only came across to Europe when he was about 32 years old and then, you know, started racing across here in, first of all, Garmin Slipstream and then moved into Orica Green Edge and then on to now rally his final team. But prior to that, he was a man searching in life, doing a lot of mountain climbing, you know, camping, whatever there is to do it. Like he's just a man of so many experiences and it's just great talking to him. So I hope you really enjoy this one as much as I did. We didn't get enough time to hear all the stories, but we get to hear a couple of beauties. So sit back and enjoy that. And if you're looking for another way to support the podcast, just before our little break, we have partnered up with the Wide Angle Podium platform, which is a platform for all cycling-related podcasts. And there's some great podcasts on there, my personal favorite being the Slow Ride Podcast, who have actually done a really good Tour de France rap. A couple of times during the tour, they catch up, see what's going on in the tour, who's going good, who's not going good, really interesting to listen to. Even now, go back and listen to it, seeing as the tour is over. And Let It Ride also did a Tour de France special too. So go across the Wine Angle Podium and check out the network of little podcasts they've got there. If you want to support our podcast, be muchly appreciated. So go across there and there's a donate drive there where you can log in and donate and add some, uh, some funds to help this podcast keep going ahead. On another side note, there is some exciting news with Life in the Peloton, our official merch well, merchandise has been released, so some great t-shirts and tote bags and things out there, jumpers. Check it out. Go to lifeinthepeloton.com. Check out our shop and feel free to spend away and at least you're going to look the part or get a coffee mug and drink a beautiful coffee listening to the podcast in the official Life in the Peloton podcast mug. 
Well, without further ado, I'll bring you the podcast. So sit back and really enjoy this one. We're back on track till the end of the season. Cheers. We're up here in the good side of the valley, my side of the valley in Andorra. <laughs> uh, in, above Soldeu, we've swayed The real up, high country. <laughs> the real say. high country, as they say. Sol, the valley <laughs> of the sun. I've got Swaino over, local man from the country. He's come up to my place and we've, we've hiked up into the high, high country, found no. a little spot to perch. <clears throat> Not used to these high ramparts no. at all. We, we found a nice bit of grass. We're kicking back. We'll have to take a photo at the end so everyone can see. And we're just gonna have a little chat. It's the day after the Tour de France. Welcome Swaino to Life in the Peloton. Thanks bud. Happy to have you on board. Hell of a place we got here. It is really good. It's a shame we got to record this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this is pretty much what we do all the time. We just sit back and talk, and I sit back and listen to your stories. And I've said it to you since I've been running the podcast. I've got to record one of these stories one day because I just love hearing them. And that's the idea today because um, there's so much stuff we can co- cover with you. But I just thought we'll just let it roll and maybe one of these stories will come out and we can we can get it on tape for someone. But before we get into that, I thought, seeing as the tour just finished yesterday, the Tour de France that is, I want to get your perspective on the Tour de France because you've done three tours and they're not all smooth paved roads as everyone sort of seems to think they are, are they? Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, it's... Uh... That's a special race, that one. Um, <clears throat> for for all the Grand Tours, for me, that's like the one that has the extra elements that uh, can really do some damage to a guy. What was it like, that first tour you did, 2013, what is it like being, first of all, what is it like being on the circus for three weeks? Because I, I get the feeling it really is a circus in comparison to any other race, let alone any other Grand Tour. Well, yeah, I think for me, the biggest difference is at that point is I'd done Giro and the Vuelta uh, quite a few times and I'd gotten used to the the rhythm of three weeks. I knew how to get around that. But uh, the thing that blew my mind was just how it seemed like everyone, like the riders, the staff, everyone got like that extra little bit of crazy. It's like Mm. a battle to get there, a battle to like get your spot. And it was it was the same for everyone. And I felt like even the riders were just, it's like they were bought into the hype. And for me, it was just like, this is just another bike race. Like, why are we stepping it up to such a crazy level? So I think that part kind of bothered me because I feel like a lot of times it was like desperation. Guys got to this race and they felt like they had to do something so much. And it just seemed like a crazy notion to me. It's like, that's, you should just always race your bike as best as you can and, you know, be a good teammate, try and, you know, you work hard and, and you just kind of conduct yourself mm. in the same way. But we get to this race and it's like, man, everyone just... <laughs> Break goes, the volume notch off. Yeah, just <laughs> twist it to 15, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think that part always kind of bothered me because I never liked desperation in bike racing. I always felt like as soon as guys switch to that mode that's when things become dangerous and you stop caring about those around you you know and you're just concerned about your your benefit or you getting ahead and i think 
that's kind of always been an issue for me with bike racing. Well, tell me about 2013 tour because it didn't end up being the most easy tour, even though it was your first one. And I remember hearing about this on the outside. You were in the end fighting to get through the tour and ended up doing the last couple stages almost alone, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah, in many ways that was probably the best thing for me. But um, yeah, it was it was a massive first 10 days for us. That was the year um, Garrow won a stage and got the jersey and, and then Impey took over the next mm. day. Um, we had that great team time trial, like... It was like, for me, it was everything. I, I, there was a long time trial where I put everything into it. It was an awesome first half of the tour. And, but it absolutely buggered me, you mm. know. And prior to that, I'd done the Giro and then uh, Tour Slovenia. So I was probably like, I mean, you could see it coming. I was going to be on fumes by the time the third, <laughs> third week rolled around. But I'm just like, a, I'm always hoping for the best, you know. And, uh, geez, you hit those Alps, man. And I think that year we did, like, uh, two times Alp de Fuez, you know, like, just ridiculous stuff. And for me, it was, yeah, just next level, having that fatigue and just that extra stress load of all the well, work the that we did yeah. and then the crowds and all the stuff that I'm just not really accustomed to, you know? Yeah. And I don't think really anyone is. I'm not saying I'm special in that case. I just think some guys maybe like it or they handle it in a, in a different way. But for me, it's kind of like, it's taxing. And uh, yeah, I remember those final two stages, the, the final stage before Champs-Élysées. Man, it was one of those filthy short stages where they just put in like three monster climbs back to back. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was the kind of thing, you do the neutral, everyone's like going warp speed because you basically start on like a, probably a 20k climb something like this and right out of the blocks i'm like i'm not fighting for anything <laughs> i'm just i'm just gonna stay here close to the cars and we hit kilometer zero and sure enough you're like right into switchbacks and man i i suffered like for me it was so important to finish that you know because i you never know like at my age then i was 36 maybe that would be my like yeah. my only tour de france i i had i was my best tour de france actually looking back um, because of all the great experiences and, and uh, yeah, just where I was at in my life. But uh, I didn't know if I'd do another one after that, and I, I, I so important to me to finish. And, man, I was suffering that day. And I remember <laughs> just catching the, the, the last gruppetto, probably about 3 or 4K before the finish, and I was just... Safety? Uh, yeah, I was just so... Yeah, it's weird. It's not even like you can be happy because you're just so fucked that you, yeah, it's just a, it's an emotion that I can't really, like I remember just coming on the bus and I was just crying. I don't really cry that much in my life, but it was just like one of those moments where you're just like, yeah, all that stuff was coming out and yeah, it's, it's an amazing experience and I'm, I'm so happy I got to got to do that in my life that's one of the things that um i won't forget forever you know mm, it's a challenge yeah. that like you just yeah. said then i'm thinking about matters of going to the welter and i know that that point's going to come and even though every year you're like i'm better i'm stronger i'm probably not going to be at that point i was at last year there comes a point in the race mm. where everything the situation from the day before the situation of the race the stress that you've built up on yourself you get to that point of the 
am I going to make it? And you're just so satisfied when you do able to make it. Yeah. 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 And it's, like I said, it's not like you're, you're happy because you can't physically be that happy. Like I remember I'd crashed really bad. So my, Mm. I had something wrong with my, my wrist or my elbow. And I remember riding even chumps. I was just riding off the back, like thinking, oh, this will be easier. But that race is the worst. Like you're actually on real cobbles getting like there's holes on the back stretch when you're doing like 60k an hour down downhill <laughs> and i'm just yeah i'm just groveling but like i just knew you had to finish and that Since after the fact been... i'd feel awesome and yeah. that right now it was gonna suck you know but well tell me then now because all the guys will be traveling home today what's the feeling now day after the tour week after the tour for you anyway what's that feeling like coming home well for me it was yeah, it was just so important to get get home and and get regrounded. Like for me, <clears throat> obviously a big night out on the piss <laughs> Sunday night. No, no, that's not really my style. I can't really <laughs> handle that after smashing myself for three weeks straight. <laughs> I don't know how guys do that, but uh, I don't know either. I think a couple beers and I'm pretty much wrecked. Um, yeah, I wanted to get home and just get into the mountains again and kind of remove myself from the madness that is the tour and that's always been for me that's more of a personal thing like I find the hotel living and always being on a bus and always being around millions of people it's again it's it's pretty taxing and to just get home is blissful like to to eat like real food Mm. that grows from the ground (laughs) and be outside like yeah in fresh air without people screaming or cowbells ringing that was just, uh, and it, you know, it's a weird thing because you're also been running on this high, this like adrenaline mm. endorphin high. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. And maybe young guys for their first time doing grand tours is like, it's like a mini depression when you come out of there because every day you've had this goal, this mission, this, this objective that you, and people give a shit about you. Yeah. Yeah, people actually like are like getting worked up about the situation. You're in meetings going like, "Yeah, I got to be there." You know, like, a, and you're important, and yeah. someone comes up and sees you every morning. Oh, and people yeah. send you messages. It's, it's absolute you bullshit. Come home and it's just cut cold. No one cares totally. about you. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny actually. Yeah, and I think that's that's a hard part of the the psyche. Um, and no, no way am I complaining. But it's it's quite interesting when you come home from a grand tour because it should just be smiles and sunshine and for the most part it is but you're definitely struggling with a few things where it's like your brain chemistry's off a bit and you're just you're trying to get that reset and sometimes it's going to take a week or two weeks and you need to just give it that time but um i think yeah after you've done a few you start to understand that and you and some guys are different like some guys just keep the the throttle going you know they go on a vacation and they drink and that's cool too man whatever works i I, i'm all for it but i know for me i just have to go through that kind of tough period and you crawl out the other side and and uh so for me yeah it's just getting home and getting grounded again and yeah back to the basics and i always joke about it but it's fun coming back uses inverted commas it's fun coming back and doing the normal things, doing your own yeah. cooking, doing your own washing, doing your own, you know, dishes. They're things that in a weird way I do miss because yeah. you, you just, it does get, 
monogamous, just sort of going into the dining hall every day. That's sort of fun for about two, three days. And then, yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. It's, it's one of those things you, 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 we live this crazy life of contrast where, you know, you're, you know, if you enjoy all those things that, that you have at home, you go on the road and it's just a completely different world again. It's, you're just always in this kind of bipolar lifestyle. And, uh, I definitely enjoy the, the life at home much more. <laughs> well, let's talk about a little bit about the early part of your career. Um, and something that we speak about quite often, well, not that often, but I'm always trying to ask you about the early stuff because by the time you came across to Europe and raced the European scene full time, you were a little bit older. Um, you'd come across a little bit in between with a few teams, but you were mainly back in Canada racing but way back in 2001 you were racing for mercury back in well back in the in canada or in the states was it well so at that time mercury had become a full-time european team i was on a smaller american team called broadmark capital and they they actually developed a lot of young guys <clears throat> from america and canada Actually, Tyler Farrar was one of the guys on that team. Was he? From the Pacific Northwest, yeah. Oh. And, um, yeah, we had quite a few good guys come out of that, that program. Horner? No, <laughs> no Horner. Um, but I did race with Horner on Prime Alliance oh. uh, the year after that in 2002. And, uh, but, yeah, that was, uh, at that time, I was just so green. And I, I actually raced a ton because I was between three different teams, Broadmark, Canadian national team, and then a stagiaire with Mercury towards the end of that year. And I'd, I'd gone from like just some local racing, Pacific Northwest stuff, you know, like hardest, biggest thing was the nationals. Yeah. And then now here I am doing like full NRC, then like national team stuff where you're like racing like crazy stuff, like tour Guadalupe, <laughs> doing Pan Am championships in Columbia. Uh, just all over the shop, you know, started out the year in Langkawi, actually raced Langkawi oh, like back in the day. Yeah, back in the day when guys weren't wearing helmets and this and that. Chihuahua? Did, Ch Chihuahua came later. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was later with uh, Symmetric, with Christian. <sighs> yeah, so um, I was super green and just doing a ton of races and I ended up coming over to Europe at the end of that, that year and uh just way over my head man like i i knew nothing about proper european racing crosswinds and positioning all that stuff was just beyond me and and um i was racing with some hardened guys who weren't getting paid you know actually one of them's your director uh fabrizio guidi oh yeah yeah so he like he was on mercury and i remember doing plue with him and uh i i think warden was the the guy who was running the show, I don't think, I know, but I think he wasn't paying those guys, and I remember they were pretty cheesed off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I was really, like, I didn't know what was going on, but I just felt like, geez, everyone seems really pissed, you know? Were you getting paid? No, no, I was just, like... Happy to go home for dude, the Dude, I was happy because I, I showed up at a warehouse, and they had some, some bags of... Uh, clothing yeah. and i was just like i'd never seen anything like this in my life you know yeah um yeah and i did these these hard races and and then my final race of that block was was tour de l'avenir with uh 
Baden Cook and actually Matt Wilson was on. Wow. That team. And Cookie was, Cookie was flying, man. It was ridiculous. Like he was winning sprints, winning mountaintop, like, like horse category climbs, like Whoa. circuits and stuff like this. But um, yeah, I, again, I, I don't, I can't even remember what I was doing there because I, I don't know if I was helpful. I don't know anything, man. I was just there, basically crashing every day. <laughs> like I was. I, I don't know, man. It was it was a real experience, but um, I ended up crashing out of that race. Maybe uh, it wasn't maybe stage six or something like that. And uh, I, f I flew home from Paris on a United flight on the same day as nine one one on the nine eleven. Yeah, and uh, we got grounded in um, in St. John's, Newfoundland, and. Uh, it was the craziest thing because I I never forget like being on that plane and watching the stewardesses like they were pacing up and down like I guess when it they had gotten the news you know and I was like how would they have weird. gotten the news on the plane then well I guess they they must have through the pilots yeah and it, they would have like wanted to keep it really like low, low key. key but they weren't obviously yeah they knew I guess they knew what had happened but what they told us over the the PA was that. It sounded just like a, a small plane had crashed as an accident into a building somewhere in America and that the U.S. airspace had been closed and we were just going to be grounded in Canada for, for a short period of time, you know? But the thing is, you couldn't have imagined what had happened at that point anyway. No, no, you had no so idea. So there's no way your mind was ever thinking like, maybe someone went into the Twin Towers. No, yeah. no. I, I mean, people on the plane were like talking about aliens and stuff like this, okay. <laughs> not, like coming up with crazy shit and uh you smoke on the planes back then <laughs> <laughs> no but that's pretty sweet that you could do that at one point <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah we got grounded in st john's and i'll never forget because we were on the plane for a super long time till people had like a meltdown because the the shitters were <laughs> oh when it was full. when it was landed you were on there for ages yeah, yeah, uh, yeah because okay. they were sorting out everyone's luggage to see if like there was other i don't know they wanted to see everyone's luggage and the airport this was a tiny airport and it had like probably two thousand planes trying landing there you know like what yeah because all the flights had to get like somewhere somewhere two thousand sounds ridiculous but it was a lot like it was just plane after plane and they're trying to figure everyone out people had a meltdown on the plane they bust us to the stadium in the in the city and it was the first time we actually saw what happened they had it on the screen you know and that's when you realized like Whoa. what had what had gone down did people calm down then or did people get more crazy yeah it was a mix of things because i think like it's like a lot of things in life the truth is always crazier than fiction you know mm. like you couldn't come up with that kind of stuff and I think that was like to watch it in real life was yeah pretty scarring. And I remember could you could you go from there, or you had to stay at the stadium? Well, we we had to stay until they'd sorted out our stuff, and and what they had was like a just this big row of phones you could call anywhere in the world. Mm. And this was in the day like no, there was no smartphones and this no. and that. I like how much was the internet? I didn't. I don't think I used the internet in that at that time. When was two thousand one? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, it was dial-up. Yeah, I was, like, calling back home. Everything's cool, you know, like... Because you knew numbers, too, back then. Yeah, yeah, that was the other thing. You remember, like... Ten proper, numbers, yeah. yeah. 
And uh, we, we got like kind of our group got taken to this um, church and... For your group, like your flight. Yeah, yeah. like our flight. And we, we got bussed out to this church like out on the outskirts of town. And the, the idea was like they were going to have everything organized, sorted out, and we were going to be out of there within a day or two. So everyone was sleeping on the floor of the church and the local people from the town were coming and like cooking meals and like actually feeding us it was crazy man like, was it good food oh well you know like sometimes it was like some tim horton stuff like sloppy joes <laughs> and then it would be like some real food some soup and stuff i can't remember too much <laughs> yeah i wasn't in the best state but um we were actually ended up being there geez it must have been like six seven days <sighs> and every day they would tell you like don't go anywhere too far away because it could, it, we think today is the day we're going, you know. In like an hour or yeah. two hours, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was just, yeah, it was an interesting time. Do you speak to anyone from back then? No, no, I mean, yeah, it was interesting. Like, you, like I did for a while. There was a few people I kept in touch with, but, yeah, life is funny, you know. Like, you just, uh, it just keeps changing. You move over somewhere totally different again. Yeah, it's... Yeah. But I do remember for a couple of years being in touch with a couple of people. You got to tell me about, because before this, so 2001, wait, 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 before we go to that, what I want to ask you is, how did you get into cycling? Because from little parts of the story you've told me along the way, you're from BC, Canada, the mountains. Your dad's a bit of a, mountain man and sounds like you know your family was into a lot of sort of outdoor stuff water skiing you know mountain skiing you know climbing rock climbing stuff like that so how did how did professional bike racing come out ever into the scene yeah i mean i actually don't know this story no i and it's it's one of those things like i when I think of it, I, I think it's so weird that I ended up doing this at all. Like, cause I was really lucky as a kid. We did awesome stuff. Like me and my brother had a sweet life. My dad always had us. I mean, he had his ways about doing stuff, but he always had us doing really cool stuff. We were hiking, skiing. Yeah. Just stuff that always had you out moving. And, uh, I, I always grew up with that appreciation for nature and wanting to be out and, you know, like from my younger years, I was I was pretty I was pretty disillusioned with like <laughs> I would just say like society in general. Like I, I was not really a fan of the usual way of life. You know, like the 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 way the system set up. You you go to school, you just jump through hoops and hoops until you find something that you kind of slot into, but you're not sure and you're not super happy. But now you've gone so far into it that you just I better just do it now. Yeah, I just got to do this. And that, that was never an option for me. I'd rather be a hobo just <laughs> hanging out, you know, at the beach. Than, uh, and I know hobo life is not as sweet as, as that sounds. But um, it just seemed to me like the, the way things were set up was just not, not for... It wasn't a, uh, a way that I wanted to go. And so I, I was searching. And uh, At what age? So that was that probably started around 15, 16. I started doing like uh, a lot of backcountry trips, climbing trips, 
and uh, I used to set up winter camps up in the mountains and I would go for like a month or two and just stay up there like way out there like uh, with these big outfitter tents that you could put a wood stove in and and uh I just was... just a side note there because I know this is a whole other story because I've heard this before but just to give people an idea of what you actually mean by that because from what you've told me it was you could drive to a certain point with these tents a huge tents <laughs> yeah but then from there you actually had to hike in for how long well it'd be like a full proper day like proper full day like six in the morning kind of like depart and getting up there at nighttime because they're like sort of big canvas tents massive right? yeah like miners and and that use them like because you build the wooden structure around them and uh so how'd you get all that stuff up there with a day just, hike well you just you would just do two missions. yeah oh two no no i would do like probably like 20 trips because you would bring all kinds of supplies in there right 20 trips yeah i mean that was just what i was doing that's all i wanted to do that's what i you know i had some really basic jobs i worked Worked at a butcher and a gas station and a pressure washer. I had three jobs where I could like work really random, randomly, you know? And then I'd hay bale in the summer. So like you'd go talk to a farmer and in the summer, do some hay baling. And uh, that, that would just keep me going enough to like supply myself to do these winter, winter trips. And, and uh, so you'd build up supplies like canned food and things like that. Yeah, a lot of dried goods you know like oatmeal and rice and try and seal them off as good as you can and and uh, i learned so many things the the really hard way i mean if you look at my first setup it was it was just a mess of like plastic and and like uh balsam fur like <laughs> and and a barrel as a stove you know and i just smoked myself out i mean it was it was basically just me being stubborn but that's how I learned yeah. a lot of these hard lessons. And uh, I mean, I could go on story. That's a whole other part of my life that mm. I could carry on for hours. But um, but during that period of sort of like, what, 15 to 18, you were doing that. Mm -hmm. And in that, what I really fell in love with was like just going, going out, like going out into the nothingness. And that's one thing beautiful about Canada is that you know, here we are in Europe, we're sitting up in the Pyrenees and, you know, you go any which way, you're going to run into a village, a trail, a car, a motorbike. You can hear a motorbike yeah. tearing up the mountain now. Yeah, and we're sitting in this beautiful meadow. But um, in Canada, like, once you leave the one road that goes through that area, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. You're going into a proper wild country. And I think a big part of my youth was like, I was obsessed with like going into those places and just seeing what they were not because I thought I was an explorer or that you know it was just fascinating to me to go like beyond that mountain and just see what's what's there because yeah I think a lot of my younger years was spent doing that you know and uh that's what brought me to the bike because uh I started really getting into climbing like mountaineering and uh like rock climbing or just like high yeah, sort of so, hiking? So for me, it's like, uh, it's a mix. I like the mix stuff. So like rock climbing is like, you have a face, like, uh, you know, when you take that to the extreme level, it's like you go to the Yosemite and you do a wall climb. That's like the epitome of rock climbing. And it's awesome. Like those guys have ridiculous skills. I was never that good, but I like to scramble. And I like, I like some, I've definitely done some decent climbs, you know, um, 
but I love mountaineering because it required the whole of range of everything. Yeah. You you have the epic bushwhacking, uh, the route to like if you're doing a new route, you're having to explore your way and and get to where you're trying to get to start the the actual climb, and then you're involving so many things where, you know, if the route's never been done, you don't have any prior knowledge right so it's like it's totally new and i had some great friends who i did that a lot with and and um you know as as you do that we always needed cars because like in canada we have great distances to it's like us you know yeah like if you got to get somewhere cool it's like you need a car yeah and uh that was just becoming too expensive and um i uh I figured like, man, if I could just load my equipment, my dog on a bike and just cruise, you know, like that would cost me nothing. Yeah. You know. Because time wasn't an issue for you. Dude, that's the best thing about those yeah. those times is that time was, time was. Irrelevant, yeah. actually. I think. Of Only like, weather probably was the thing time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The changing of the seasons and then the current weather. Yeah. That was all that mattered to you as far as time went. But. As far as, like, I remember touring back in those days, if I didn't feel like riding that day, I'd lay down in a meadow like this or by a creek somewhere, read a book. I didn't care. Didn't yeah. matter. Whereas now, like, that I'm going to be back by Monday. I got, <laughs> yeah. I got all these things I got to do. And yeah. it's, like, it's maddening. But um, anyways, I, fe- I, I went down that path to get to the mountains to, to actually explore and not have this big expenditure of a vehicle because like in Canada, you know, insuring and all this stuff, it gets, gets out of hand. And, uh, that's what started me on the bike. I just, once I did like my first few trips, I also have stories that could go on for ages <laughs> from that. Uh, again, learning the hard way. Cause my first bike I bought from like a secondhand store, like a, a value village, like the crappiest place you could ever buy a bike from. And it just, everything that could break on a bike broke, broke on that first trip, you know? And I, it was like a proper trip. Where was the trip the to? It was up to Bilicula, which is like heading north in British Columbia. And it was too late in the season, but I was just keen to, to go. Just on dirt roads and stuff? or Yeah, so you get on, on parts of some pretty gnarly roads. But what you also have there is you get on this plateau. It's called the Chilcotin Plateau. And it's like, it's records some of the coldest weather in canada for some reason because it's (laughs) and it was like kind of uh late october and i hit a patch there where yeah i was i was not well equipped and it was dropping down to like minus 20 and winds (laughs) minus 20 yeah and uh that was uh that was a tough tough spell but um yeah like i said you get through that stuff (laughs) and you've like rebuilt everything on a bike and you're pretty much like if you still like it after that i I was in love so So where were you going on that trip were you purely going on a bike i wanted to go up into the chicolton chicolton mountains and just be up there for a while and go scramble and kind of the bike was purely transport it was purely transport i was seeing it as a a tool not as something that i actually enjoyed because i hated it for like the first you know if you've never ridden and you just think oh, I'm going to go ride 15 days this way That's and hell. everything's going to be awesome. Like uh, minimum 100K. Like you actually had, the, I had that in my mind. Like, well, I have to do over 100K. Cause, I die. Yeah. Because On this mountain bike. Shitty. No, it was a shitty road bike. Oh. And with a steel trailer that I'd welded up, like heavy, heavy. And then I had a dog that probably weighed like, 
would that be in kilos? Like 30, 35 kilo. <laughs> and all my equipment in so this. So like, like a 60 kilo at least yeah. trailer. Yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, trailers are great. a day. Trailers are great when you're on the flats and you're moving along. It's fine. But when you're climbing... But my, we had a good system with my dog. Like as soon as I slowed down to like creeping pace, he just knew to jump out, <laughs> and he'd just go timber cruise along the side of the road, chasing grouse and rabbits and shit. That was a good system. Yeah, it was great, and he knew like even in headwind sections, he would just run. So he would probably run half forty, fifty k oh, a day. Yeah. yeah, like no problem. He was. Yeah. Did you have to tell him that in the beginning? Out, mm. out. Well, he wasn't, because, like, I'd spent so much time teaching him to be in, so he was kind of confused, like, when I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't get out here. Yeah. yeah. Now so. out, get out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's all part of being a young man, confused, and, yeah. So, yeah, like I said, after that trip, I, I still loved it, even though I'd gone through all that crazy stuff. Um, I actually lost my wallet which didn't have really any money to speak of anyway. <laughs> um, but I like, that's where I got my first taste of like being like a hobo. And I was like picking up cans for the, like the rest of the trip to get home. And so, you know, like in to the, get, to get food, money for food. Yeah. That's all it was. Cause you need money for anything else. Did you? No, there was no other expenditure except my sweet bike, which I couldn't buy a part for anyway. So I'd have to jury rig it together just enough to get home. <laughs> But that's where, like, um, yeah, I mean, I, after this trip, I still liked it. And, and that's where I got the determination to, like, get a better setup and get a little money together. And then next year, the following season, I want to go to Alaska. And uh, For the bike side of it, or is there still an element of, I want to go to Alaska, and then once I get there, I want to do... A camping trip and then like do some scrambling. No, that, that became purely because I was like, biking is sweet. Mm. Like living like this is the way you have all the stuff that you need, which I look back at that time and I think of how simple that was. Like that was for me, one of the most beautiful times in my life. Cause I was truly like, I think of how I am now and I love my life. I love like all the experiences I've gotten to do. But when I think back to the freedom, the true freedom that I had, that was the time of my life that was run me through what you would have actually had on you then so how were you sleeping on the day-to-day basis okay well so what would the trailer have again because i went to alaska twice the first time was like stubborn mcgee like i'm gonna do it old school like they did back in the day and i i reckon i had pneumonia probably the first couple weeks why? Because of one night or? Well, one, I left too early. So typical, like I, I just wanted to get the show on the road. So like, you know, Canada is a different beast than it is here in Europe. You know, when you start heading north in, in April, you still have some, some wild weather. And uh, I was just going on, basically I wanted to make a fire every, every night. So every time I was cooking, I had, it had to be by fire. And uh, did you have a you didn't have a gas stove with you? No, 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 no. I wasn't. Like, even though I had that stuff, I was like, I'm, I'm going, not take I'm going old school like yeah. I did back in the day. A woolen blanket and a tarp. So that was like my sleeping setup. And uh, How would you rig the tarp up between two trees? So, yeah, what I would do is like, in my mind, like you only need a tarp if it's really raining hard because one of the tricks up north is like you can sleep under 
uh, like balsam fir trees and big fir trees, and you essentially stay dry. Like up, up north, it's a drier climate. And uh, I would sleep a lot under these trees, and I would build two fires like on either side, you know? Keep you warm. Yeah, because it would get bloody cold when you just have a wool blanket. Mm. And I didn't have down, like I didn't have any tech gear. I just had like wool. I was, I, honestly, when I look back, I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> like why I would do that to myself. And, uh, and I remember that, I remember one night I thought I was going to die. Like I really thought like, oh, this is probably going to be it. Cause I was sick. I was like uh, pneumonia sick, like where you're coughing and you have those chills, but it's like, it's also minus 10, minus five. And you couldn't warm It's up. snowing and I have the fires around me and you're sweating. You're like going into full on sweats and then chills. And the shakes were like, so like. And your body, like everything, I remember like from that night, I still remember, I have the feeling right now when I'm telling you this, I, I feel it in my bones because it was felt like the chill was just like taking you over. Like it, it it's so crazy because I, I remember thinking were you like- just scared then? Dude, Did I, you want to go back home or were you just like, I'm- There was no option. If you could see where I was, it would probably be like the closest town, 200K. The closest house, maybe- 150 and you're on that shitty old bike you're on a shitty bike on a on so i was on the cassio highway which is use two options to go up to alaska you can go the long way which is alaska highway go through the flats not so beautiful or you go cassio highway straight through the coast range <laughs> but it's hardcore it's gravel it's up and down it's grizzly bear they call country it, they called it the highway it's gravel yeah road. yeah it's a joke but it's like a it's like basically for resources that's it it's logging and mining and grizzly bear country yeah in the in the spring like on a nice day you would see probably on the side of the road in a, on an average day 20 20 black bears and average yeah and you might see the odd grizzly like when you get up into the higher country you know so it's just like it was proper wild country and so you you know you don't have a choice it's not like you can just go like well just shut her down and stop the trip you know <laughs> so yeah i mean it's was it so were there towns along the way eventually yeah was yeah it nice getting into a town sometimes yeah but that's you know that's like modern day stuff like now it's nice getting into town because i have money and i can go yeah. have a good dinner <laughs> yeah but there i was like on such a serious budget i remember like my real treat would be like if i get to a gas station and they had like a chocolate milk oh yeah that was like crack cocaine to me i would like smash one of those on the on the curb and then continue on i think of like now like how you just yeah. i go touring now and i have access to everything you know like yeah. it's just ridiculous <laughs> and uh yeah and it's still hard in its own way because you're used to the the, the good the good parts totally yeah. yeah but like back then i didn't know any better man you know what i would eat at night would be like i would buy a sack of potatoes on sale and I would haul that like <laughs> so heavy four kilos of potatoes, but like that's what I'm eating, you know. What would you do for water? Take a big water with you? No, I, like that's another thing. Great thing about the North Country is that like streams. A stream on the side of the Cassio Highway is it's more untouched than any stream mm. here, you know. Like it's there's and they're nothing. always readily available. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's like every if there's nothing in 20k, it'd be pretty rare. Mm. And it just doesn't dry. It's like we don't have drought season up there, you know? Yeah. Like it's just so, it's it's real like 
rainforest kind of stuff, you know? The so reason the, the trees grow so bloody big. <laughs> so this is, this is the beginning of where we are now. And then, so just to fast forward a little bit <laughs> from that trip, then to say like where you were then in 2001, what was that road then that got you from doing the touring trips onto a road bike to start racing? That's the real, yeah. Because I, I honestly thought at that time I was just going to tour and kind of be a hobo because there, there was also a period where... Because you were, how old were you now? 20? Yeah, I was getting into 20, yeah, 20s, 21. And I was still living the life. Like I said, I went to Alaska two times and I was also riding the rails a lot, like uh, freight Train trains. Rails. Yeah. What about your dog? Yeah, they... Like my my mm. friends that I go with, they, they would come and the mm. dogs would come and we'd do like proper trips. Mm. I, where it actually started, we had this really shitty job um, stacking railway ties, used railway ties, the, you know, the big uh, wooden mm. things. Sleepers, yeah. yeah. Sleepers, you call them, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'd be situated way out God, in the, in that's the Rockies. That's a hard, hard oh, job. Honestly, the worst job I've ever had. <laughs> But it was like a bonus system. So if like you did a certain amount of work each day, it was only worth it to do the bonus day. Yeah. Anyways, where we learned to ride the rails was uh, working at this job because we'd be situated like way out in the in the Rockies, middle of nowhere, and you had to get into town. But we had no like transport. Yeah. What were so, you staying like a little hut out there? Little tents. We had yeah. our we had our tents, you know, and. Uh, so we, we started figuring out the train system. The trains, like the, the, so there's like the priority trains go ripping through, like full gas. Everything has to pull over for them. They're the ones with like the cooling containers and all that stuff. And then there's like the grain and coal containers. They pull over for everyone. But they're the sweet rides because they have good place to sit, good place to stash your bags, good place to put your dog. And they pull over at all the, the switch yards. So the next town had a big switch yard, so we always knew we could get get, get on at our yard and, and get off at that yard. And then we started figuring that's it. We're like, man, on a day like this when it's, you know, 25 degrees, sunny, there's no better way to travel the world, man. I'm not, like for me to this day, I, I couldn't imagine a better way to, to see the countryside because you, you don't go on the normal routes. Yeah. You go off. You know, you go through different parts of the mountain range and you, you see totally different stuff and you're not in control. You're left, I mean, there's been times where we've just stopped at a switchyard, man, middle of nowhere, and you don't know what's going to happen. And you camp the night. <laughs> and no, you realize, like, when you walk up, the engines have just dropped it off and pissed off. Oh, shit. <laughs> and so you're like, well, these could be here for another... Two Week. weeks. Yeah, <laughs> you could be at this random just. So then you got to hike out of there, and you you don't know where the highway is, or you know where the <laughs> next closest thing is. So you just got to walk, <laughs> you know. And no phone, Google Maps. No, yeah. nothing. This is back in the day, man. Yeah. I, I I love that. I, I really do love that about those times, not having so much access to information so easily. It just made made life a little more exciting. I've gone way off track. Um, how, what how were we talking about? Yeah, yeah. how did you, how'd you become to the road? Yeah, so um, my dad, he's, uh, he's always, he's grown up with sport. He's Norwegian. He, uh, 
He was at the Olympics. No, my grandfather was. Oh, your grandfather. But my dad was a ski jumper and a cross-country skier. Um, and that's kind of how he came over to Canada. One of the, the deals was teaching ski jumping and skiing and all that stuff. Um, so he's always been into sport and, and particularly uh, European sport. And my grandfather also raced bikes. Like oh. I don't know if you know the Ringerike race. Yeah, I do. You, you yeah, heard of that race yeah. back in the day? He won that like wow ages ago. And what's crazy is like I remember seeing that trophy and asking my dad, but it wasn't a big thing. Like he didn't really go on. I mean, he probably did, but I didn't understand bike racing at all. I, mm. We didn't grow up with it. I didn't like if I saw the tour, it didn't interest me mm. at all. Um, so yeah, it was somewhere it was in there, and uh, and I think both my parents like because I you know I dropped out of school. I was doing just rubbish jobs just to save money for these trips and I'd disappear for six months at a time. So they just thought I was nuts. You Were know? they ever like, worried about you? Oh, constantly. I, yeah. I was horrible. I was a horrible son, really. To be honest, when I look back, I was the worst because it, like, it probably would have been better if I was just doing drugs and like close to home, you know? Yeah, <laughs> at least see. they could see. <laughs> but they, like, I would disappear like like my backcountry setups, I would disappear for a month or two at a time when it's like high avalanche danger in the coastal mountains of BC. And all I was doing was backcountry snowboarding by myself. They probably didn't believe that you were doing that. No, they knew because oh. my dad came and saw like my stuff. And, oh. and I think that probably like made it more concrete that this kid's nuts, you know. <laughs> and my mom, she just probably, yeah, she probably didn't want to believe it at all. Um, but she also... Now we talk about it all the time, you know, like, and I, I apologize a lot for my, the way I was, but you don't know because you're just a lost young man. And uh, anyways, uh, I was working an, a job at a, it was like a sports store <laughs> and it was like heavy, heavy emphasis on the bikes and the guy promised he was, he was a really good dude actually, he helped me out a lot with, um, my bikes for uh, my touring trips, you know, just like giving me stuff and because he could just tell my situation, you know. And He just looked at me and went, what? You went to Alaska yeah, on that? He was just a sweet dude and he, he really helped me out and he said, hey, I got this other job opportunity. If you could help me at the store, you can stay, you can stay there. Because that was also a big thing for me to have somewhere to stay. And I remember I slept. Oh, up. like sleep there. Yeah, yeah combination. I slept under the stairwell, you know, and... uh I worked at this shop and and uh, it was there that I was able to try like a, a triathlon, like a like a Cannondale with uh, Spinergies. Mm. And uh, it was the first time because up to that point I'd ridden like the worst the worst bikes ever with trailers and dogs and all your equipment and um, normal shoes. Yeah, normal yeah. like yeah sneakers. <clears throat> And uh, I got on one of these, this, this bike with spinnergies and no extra weight, nothing. And I was like, that was it, man. I was just, that's all it took. Like I just rode for like 2K and I was like, nah, this is the sweetest thing ever. Cause I, I'd been plodding away, man, for like, at like 15K an hour for ages, you know, like big miles, big days <laughs> with way too much shit, you know? And I got on this bike, and that was everything. And I think my dad, because we were also, like, 
I was spending a lot of time with him at that point because I was home for a good chunk of time for the first time in a long time. And he saw that kind of spark in me. And we started piecing together my, my bike, which was just like just a, a bike of a million pieces. It was like whatever we could find in that shop. And uh, that was my first race Road bike. Road bike, yeah. yeah. And, uh, Did you want to race then? Or you just wanted to go fast? I wanted to go fast at first. Yeah. But then I, I just had this, this kind of bullheaded approach where I thought like, I can do this, you know, like this is something I'd be good at. I like can I just, win. I'm yeah, better than I was the rest. Just, yeah. yeah, I was just sure of it because I was like, no one's been doing the stupid shit I've been doing, you know? And, uh, and yeah, basically I, you know, I went to my first races and it was like I either disasterly blew up or, or won by five minutes, you know? And mm. then like eventually once I figured it out, I was able to just, you know, keep smashing the local races and and then you just you become anytime you're winning something in a competition against like that's just becomes like an addictive feeling you know yeah when other people are trying Mm -hmm. and you're beating them guys have been doing it for a long time too like you know i remember you know one of these stories i so once we figured that out and i'd done some local races i went down to uh stay with my aunt in northern california and I trained all winter, like, like what an, you like was training. What I thought was training. So that's a great example of my <laughs> mindset. It's just like you had to do six hours every day, <laughs> and I had again zero money, so I was just like buying things like pasta and rice and just sleeping on the floor and smashing myself every all day. day. Yeah. And I think back to like the resiliency of youth is so incredible because like I try and think of doing that now. There's no way. You know? <laughs> There's no way. And uh, I remember we, we kind of, my dad came down, uh, he drove down from Canada and we went to a, a race with like proper pros. And we, we told the story that I was in Cat One because all I wanted to do was try and race against these guys like Mike Sayers and Gord Frazier and Eric Wahlberg, like Wahlberg, all, the, yeah. all the legends of that time, you know. Um, and I just wanted my chance to see what it was like against them, you know. And we told we we had some paper from Cycling Canada saying that I was like I'd been upgraded to Category One because you need to be a Cat One, mm. you know. And I see they kind of yeah, they kind of went along with it, you know. And I went and raced. I remember I got fifth, and it was like a hilltop finish, you know. And I just that was it, man. I blew my mind. Like I I. I I was racing against guys that do this, like, as in my mind, like, as a living, you know? Yeah. And, uh... They were world-class sort of pros back then. For sure, yeah. I, I mean, remember like, Wahlberg, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, it was a super early season race, and they were probably just doing it for fun, but to me, it was everything, you know, to have did that the, experience. Did that spark any attention from anyone then? Like, did people come and talk to you, or what, what I was think this? I probably just looked like one of those weird big kids that just show up at a race and just are just raw, like... Hmm. And people go like, well... Who knows who that was? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, who was that crazy guy again? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, I guess it like... But I, it's what I say to young guys now. It's like, just keep doing that. Yeah. And you like essentially you have to give people no other reason than to like put you on their team or to like give you a chance. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone wants things to magically happen for them. They want the easy road. Yeah. And you know I, what I mean? I'm, in my mind, I was like, well, I'm just going to show these guys, like, 
every time. I'm worthy. I'm going to, even if I like whatever, mess everything up, I'm going to smash myself every time. And, mm. and that was my mentality. And it, it was a really fast progression because I was basically like racing pro, pro in quotations, like mm. on the American scene, like within a year. So, and so what you race, once you started racing properly, week in week out is that when you started getting noticed by the teams like mercury and stuff like that yeah i mean basically my probably my biggest one was like both i i raced uh tour de Bose, which is in canada in north america it's like one of our at the time it was one of our biggest stage races and mercury was there and uh i'd won like the final stage and who for, are you racing for i was with the national team and for like a first year guy to win, like the the, the final stage of both is always the hardest, you know. Like oh, it's, it's is like it a, the queen stage. It's like a real circuit with climbs and all that kind of stuff. And for like a first year guy to win it against, like that was like Mape was there and like not the A squad, but you know yeah, what I mean. Like still, yeah, European teams were there and like. How some, did you win it? I I, I must have been. I was in a break or I bridged across to the break, like towards the, the final bits. And then because I think I was pretty unknown guy, just I hit them no. at a pretty random time. And then because I could just ride like a retard, I would, that's what I did. Like okay. until, yeah. And I think I won by 20 seconds or something, but I didn't know it at the time. Like now I look back, I was like, geez, like for a first year guy to do that, that's pretty like, I'm definitely not tooting my own horn, but it's kind of shocking yeah. when I think, because that was hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's the thing that you go back to before, the, you're talking about the resilience of youth, but the, sometimes I think the youth, just the no fear, like, yes. you, like we just said then, attack across to a break, hit the break, get to the break, and then just attack and go. Yeah. See what happens. Yeah. That no fear, just see what happens. Oh, the confidence I had, yeah. because I just didn't, the beautiful part, and, and it's something that I really loved that I got to experience in my life, was that I didn't know any better. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of the young guys know better now. Mm. They have so much information. They've seen so much. I didn't watch bike races. Mm. I didn't know anything. I just knew you had to give her. Like, and if other guys, like if you were hurting a lot, other guys were too. And so if you could like look around and see that, that was a good opportunity for you. Go a That's bit it. harder. That's all I went. Yeah. <laughs> it was, there was no intelligence involved. It was just like, yeah. Well, you've got to tell me about one, one, one last story. I don't want to go on too long here. Um, but this is one story that I've heard parts of before. But once you had got the attention after Lavenier, two, 2001 with Mercury, the next team you went on to was... What was it called then? Prime Alliance. Prime Alliance in yep. 2002. And they had a training camp down in California, didn't they? Yeah. And that was probably your first full year as a, a pro, was it then? Yeah. Yeah, of like American American pro, pro yeah. kind of like, I would say more amateur. You, you're getting paid, but it's not really a true. But the, the proper setup. Yeah. 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 You know, like go in, get the kit, the training sure. camp, everything like that. Yeah. And... Let me know, I let everyone know sort of how you approach that because you were just sort of like, I guess, one in the dark a bit of how everyone in the whole world of cycling works. And you're just like, all right, well, training camps in 
When was it? So it was February, February. like kind of mid-February. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, in, in my world, I didn't really start training on a bike at all until, like, the weather got nice in BC. Like, that, so that was pretty much beyond me. Like, uh, and I, it just wasn't a serious thing for me. I, I was not, and I still don't actually think I'm the best professional in that Because <laughs> I just think, like, I prioritize, like, enjoying life a lot more than I do about, like, being proper about certain things but anyways uh that whole winter i was skiing and snowboarding a lot and uh backcountry skiing so yeah. skiing uphill as well yeah. yeah 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 i mean you're you're moving and and cross-country skiing i love all those those sports um but you know like you can build a good engine but like you definitely don't have the bike like you get on a bike you feel pretty weird if you've been doing that for three months straight and uh this camp kept sneaking up on me and, and, uh, but the ski, the winter was just so good, you know? And, uh, I, I definitely was not taking things seriously. I just, I just go on the fact that like, if you're working, it's all good. Like it's, it's going to pay off, you know? And, uh, but I decided kind of last minute that I was going to ride down to, to camp in Southern California. How far was it? I reckon it's, it's probably 1800 to 2000 K and uh but you know february so i was i'd planned to start in february and i think it was like maybe the first week of february so it was kind of thing i had to ride over 150k a day i gave myself that thing i had one of those bob trailers like this so we were you trying to do in what two weeks or 10 days or something yeah it was like over 10 days. i think it was 12 to be okay. exact and i would show up at camp have a rest day and then hop in the <laughs> Again, totally naive as to the reality of everything. And also just sweet luck had it that it was just one of the stormiest seasons on the on yeah. the that same weather that was bringing all the sweet snow in the mountains for skiing was also smashing the coast with like rain. ridiculous cold rain, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I remember starting the trip and just going like, well, as I head south, you know, I should get better. And every day, man. And I was I was camping out, I was sleeping in the in the rainforest. Do you have a trailer on? Yeah, I had a little... Have you, you've probably seen them, those Bob trailers, single-wheeled trailers. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, a single-wheel? Yeah. Yeah, okay. They're, they're quite nice because they're, they're not a... You can actually, like, stand and, and you mm. know, you, you, it feels somewhat normal. And, uh, man, uh, every day I was just getting smashed in these horrible storms and I showed up at the camp so buggered, man. Like, I was... I was a mess, you know, but I, I got through that training camp. Like I did all the training rides and, uh, what did they think of you on your first appearance? I think when they you just already up? knew that I was a bit nuts. So yeah. like it wasn't, I mean, for sure they were like, yeah, I don't know, but they also were like a pretty cool bunch, hmm. you know, like they were pretty open to that, that kind of stuff. I'm sure they thought I was weird. No, no doubt about it, but they weren't like judgy or anything hmm. like that, or at least at the time, I didn't feel that, and like I said, I was pretty naive, but yeah. You're on a proper road bike then, so you're yeah, making yeah. good Ks. Yeah, I was able to, I'll never forget actually, I had gone through probably nine or ten days of just like the worst, you know, like that kind of seven degrees, eight degrees, pissing rain, and like going to bed at night wet, and getting up and doing it over and over again, 
and I so got you had to get there. Yeah, I had to get there in my mind too. Like, that did you was ever one think about just getting on a train or something? I'm again. I'm, when I make up my mind on stuff like this, I'm pretty stubborn. Like, yeah. So no, it was like I'm doing this. You needed the K's too. Yeah, <laughs> I did. And like, there's a certain part where, you, like, if you've just been getting hammered by rain every day, you start to forget what it's like when it's nice. But I do remember a certain section on um, the 101 highway must have been after Santa Barbara where the sky just opened up sunshine and 50k an hour tailwind tailwind and I'm ripping along bro like 60k an hour just tapping the pedals smile on my everything's drying up oh that was just heaven man was that probably like the last day day or second last day yeah it was like basically you're coming into to we had it in oxnard like like uh, in la and uh that was just bliss man it's so crazy how life can be such a contrast you go through all those rubbish days where you just what the hell am i doing and then you hit that and it's everything's changed everything's fine again you know and you get there and actually you can sort of be to a degree how was the trip trip? oh yeah it was all right actually yeah (laughs) yeah it was a bit rainy you know when i started out but uh yeah (laughs) well there's like there's a massive period obviously from 2002 right up until today um but what i want to talk to you now about is we're in the sort of later part of your career and you took a side note after spending what was it seven years or eight years at Orica, Green Edge seven, or whatever yeah, they're called, seven, seven years, Michelson. 2012 to 18. Yeah. That's right. And then last year, you sort of made a, I guess you could call it a full circle and went back to Rally. Well, not back, but you went sort of back to a local sort of Canadian team, Rally, and went, you know, I'm going to pass on some of this knowledge now to the young guys coming through, which has been this year. And now sort of transitioning out of the sport into that, that second part of your life, or well, I guess second or third or fourth, whatever you want to call it, the next part of your life. Tell me about this last year and this transition into this next phase of your life and what you're sort of thinking and how you're feeling about the whole professional cycling. Yeah, so that was, you know, racing again this year was definitely unplanned. Like we, we I basically, you know, called it... Uh, an end at uh, 2018 and I was pretty content with that um then uh you know my my old friends from Rally UHC you know like that Jonas is a guy I raced with originally on Prime Alliance oh, so it is a full circle yeah yeah and uh Pat is also a guy I raced with on on um Spider Tech hmm. and uh we we go quite a ways back as well and then Wahlberg I raced with on Symmetrics yeah and then there's Jake Erker, who's like uh, behind the scenes, um, you know, working for the team. Uh, yeah, the list kind of goes on. And, and Ryan Anderson was on Symmetrics with me in the in the early years. Is Wahlberg still doing the sit-ups in the morning and the push-ups? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy, it, it, people want to think that it's just stories, but this guy's for sure the what real, is it what how many guy. does he do every morning or i don't know time? i wouldn't count but i know he's just obsessive about exercise so yeah. let's just put it that way yeah, okay <laughs> anyway yeah but he's a legend and he is and, a legend yeah he's a sweet dude um and and you know they they came over to Girona last year and i thought it was originally to just talk about um logistics their team's trying to come over and 
race more European races. They wanted to get set up in Drona and, and this and that. And then they started pitching the idea to, to ride another year, to to be there with the guys and, and kind of like help them with that transition. Because it's, as you know, like it's not, there's not a super easy way. No. And and uh, there's a lot of stuff you kind of need to pick up along along the way. And it if you can have someone there is kind of can... You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna like tell everyone what to do, but you, like if you're there and just showing like how you've been operating for the last whatever yeah. ten years in Europe, I think it helps a lot. It does and, help. They don't have to break the ice themselves. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and I I as the the idea came more and more, I, I thought, yeah, this is this could be interesting, and it could also be a really nice way to, you know, going from Mitchelton to zero would have been a it's a tricky jump you know yeah and uh this has been a really nice way to continue racing and training doing what i love and then also trying my best to like be part of a group which is one of the main things like as i raced more and more over the years what i became to love more and more was being part of a group and trying yeah. to go out and achieve big things together and it's the same it's the same thing um and so I hope I've been beneficial to those guys. I've, I've, I mean, it's it's crazy because in your mind you always think like, well, we're not going to be racing as much. It's going to be lesser calendar. It won't be as hard as racing. Man, it, I find no matter where you're racing nowadays, it's bloody hard. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's not Tour de France hard or Giro hard, but it's pretty it's damn different. close. Like it's, it's different. Yeah, guys it's different. Guys are good everywhere. And, yeah. and people who kind of downplay a race here and there, I just think, no, man, you... It, I, I respect say, anyone. Yeah. You win a race like a two point two in Korea. Hats off, man. That's what I say. If you can win a race <laughs> anywhere, yeah, hats off. Yeah, exactly. So um, that's been probably my biggest thing is that um, I want to be go as deep as I can with the guys as far as I can in the races. You know, so that means you have to be at, at your best. And and uh, so I'd say that's changing. You know, I'm forty two. And uh, one of the things I, I would say, like, that changes for me has just been that top end. And I guess probably it's more the motivation of mm. punching yourself in the top end, you know, that when you used to train like a mad dog as a young guy where you just go and kill yourself day in and day out. I, you know, as you get older, you realize that's not super healthy anymore. <laughs> no. I think you've only got so many of those matches yeah. in the in the packet. Definitely. And so, you know, I know I I know I'm understanding my limit, and that's been a, something I've enjoyed a lot about this year is is kind of finding like to just be wiser about how you expend those bullets and and uh, and and understanding too, like your life in life things shift. You're not who you are when you're younger, and mm. it's like a big part is letting go of your ego. Yeah, and it's been a great transition that way because I don't think it would be e as easy if you said, oh, "I'll just take a year off," and you know what I mean, or transition to an, a totally other. Yeah, you'd be you'd be adjusting to a totally different work environment, but you wouldn't be dealing with those issues that are still have to be dealt with, right? You would just jump to another thing. They'd still be there, and you carry yeah. them across. And, and I still had to deal with this ego business because mm. I feel like. A big part of what we do, we get wrapped up. I mean, you and I talk about this all the time, but your identity's wrapped up in what you do, hmm. right? And like your worth and your value sometimes, you get 
as much as you and I can sit here and say like that's madness and that's not any way to live a life. We're part of that. Yeah, it's part of it, and you and you, man, it it can really sap you, you know. And I think of so many times, you know, we've been talking about race selection or this and that, and it's like it's a big part of your world at that mm. time. It's you and it's everything. But in the reality, you step outside of the bubble, man, and it's nothing. It's a joke. People would listen to your problem and be like, and? are, you, are <laughs> you kidding me? But in that moment, it's the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, a big part of that transition is, is letting go of those things, letting go of who you th like think you are on a bike. It's like you said earlier at the tour, you actually start to believe the hype a little bit, you know? Mm. Like you're, people are looking at you like maybe you're something special you know and it's like no you're just the guy just... yeah and you and you buy into that you're like oh i am special of I'm course because we're yeah. human and yeah. i think like there's no human on this planet that unless you're like a, a monk which would never be in that situation in the first place yeah. you don't fall into that trap you know and uh I, I just think like yeah you need a bit of time to kind of like realize what life really is step outside of the bubble look at those things and 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 just be glad you got to be part of such a beautiful experience mm -hmm. and and that's what it was and now you move on from that and mm. yeah so for me it's been a it's been great in that sense and, and like I said I hope I've been able to help those boys out as much as possible and we still have some great races ahead so nice yeah. one mate well I hope everyone uh, enjoyed the stories today. We certainly did in the meadow. <laughs> I'll take a little photo and um, everyone can see where we're at. Probably a nicer spot than where you're listening to this too. But it could be you could be listening to this in the meadow somewhere else. So thanks, Swaino, for uh, coming on. Thanks, bud. Great. Cheers. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed listening to that one as much as I enjoyed recording it. I had a great time sitting back there with Swaino up in the field. So if you want to see where we were, I'm going to put a photo up on the website, lifeinthepeloton.com. And while you're there, make sure you check out the shop and all the new merchandise. I want to say thanks to Lara behind the scenes and the Wide Angle Podium for helping us support the podcast. Make sure you go check out their network of podcasts there at thewideanglepodium.com. Until next time, guys, some great podcasts coming up. I'm Mitch Stocker, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.